Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we created Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. You have Grace and Clara in your ears and boy, do we have a juicy episode for you. Today, we invite Georgia Hartman onto the podcast to chat with us about her journey with premature ovarian failure in her early 20s, how her sister's diagnosis of endo led her to build Hormone Health Studio and how genetic testing can help couples with their fertility journey. But first, Clara, something happened in the news this week, which I have been dying to chat with you about. Do you know who Pamela Anderson is? Oh, of course. <laughs> Everyone knows Pamela Anderson. Yeah, I grew up in the age of Baywatch. Like, it was a huge thing. So the reason I'm bringing Pamela Anderson up is because last week I am obsessed with fashion. So when mm. Fashion Week comes out, I'm always on Vogue checking what's going on. And last week Pamela Anderson came out in the most drop-dead gorgeous clothes. As always, she's stunning. Mm. But the iconic thing well, everyone is saying it's iconic, is that she didn't wear makeup. Now, my question is, right. is this iconic? Yeah, I think this, is a re- I think this is a really an interesting point because this is actually a point I think about quite a lot in terms of, I'm going to say work. I think I bring it always back to work. But so females are always expected to wear makeup to work, right? Yeah. So you're supposed to turn up to your day job wearing you know, eyeshadow or mascara or whatever it is, you know, foundation, etc. Now, I haven't for years. Um, and the reason I haven't is my skin's quite sensitive, never did very well with it. Uh, I'm lazy. <laughs> I'm a lazy girl. I way prefer that five to 15 minutes in the morning to do something else. Um, but I also, yeah, as I said, I just don't, I don't like the feel of it, particularly on my skin the whole time. But I've always felt judged for that. And it's exactly like this, right? So Pamela Anderson, she, her whole life has been expected to turn up to any function she goes to, any, you know, work, this is technically a work function for her, but any function that she goes to, anytime she steps out her front door, She's expected to wear makeup. It's just an expectation and it's not an expectation. You know, I can't say that this is a male expectation to female. This Mm. is a society-wide expectation. I think females expect it just as much, if not more, of other females. And really, I just, you know, I think it's, it's a bit like when do we start I know this sounds like I'm going to be out there burning my bra. Um, but <laughs> when do we start saying that we don't we don't need to? You know, we it's okay for us to turn up barefaced ninety nine percent of the time. And if you want to put on makeup, put on makeup. The best advice I ever got. So before I started working with you, I worked with. Uh, he was a male entrepreneur, and mm. he said to me very early on. He said. I don't care how you look, I care what you tell me. And I would rather you spend more time talking to me than preparing how you look for a meeting because that's not important to me. The information and what we do is important. And it was at the moment I was like, oh, he's such a guy, he just doesn't understand. But that was actually a crucial thing 
he told me throughout my career because mm-hmm. that moment I stopped wearing makeup. I stopped worrying so much about what people thought of me. It actually was a really empowering thing for someone to say, it's not how you look, but it's mm-hmm. what's in you. It's your values. It's what you, what's going on in your brain. It's what's going on internally rather than externally. You're often saying to me, come in front of the camera, come in front of the camera. Can I use this? And a lot of the time I'm really conscious about that. I don't want to put my face out there. And the reason I don't want to put my face out there is because I don't feel like I conform to what is the social media normality now. I'm a girl who doesn't really wear makeup a lot. I, you know, I'm not always perfectly turned out. I am if I have to go to certain occasions, absolutely fine. But a lot, large percentage of the time, I'm, you know, I'm a mum. I'm, especially at the moment, I've got an 11 month old. I'm always dirty. Um, but I've just got other priorities. And exactly to your point, Grace, I think about so much other stuff mm. that for me, just getting out in the morning and putting on what I can put on quickly get myself out the door that's what works for me at the moment but I don't feel like I am able to be in front of the camera or to be on social media because I feel like I'm going to be judged and criticized and who wants to listen to my voice when I don't look like them oh I feel like that every day I even felt like that this morning I tried to record something to put on I quit sugar And I was like, I look so tired, but I really don't Mm. want to put a filter on myself because I really want people to look at us and can relate Mm. and feel like that's natural. But then I look at people my age, like the influencers and entrepreneurs and other brands, and I'm like, their eyebrows look great. (laughs) Their eyelashes are lush. Their lips are plump, like their complexion, a Mm. big thing for me. And this is why I've have worn makeup for so long it's I had the world's worst acne when I was a kid like you would like be in pain looking at me so now my complexion Mm. even though I don't have acne my pigment's all different from that so now I'm so curious around with you yeah how can we make ourselves feel comfortable to put ourselves out there whether it's work whether it's socializing or social media How can we put ourselves out there to feel comfortable? Mm. I think we need to be talking about this more. So I think we need to normalise it. But to normalise it, we need to have these kind of conversations and find out where this pressure comes from for people to, you know, I often turn up to events where I socialise with girls that are always very well presented, very well presented, like perfect makeup perfect outfits all of that kind of stuff and I I love them for that because I know that they take joy in doing Mm. that they like putting together those kind of outfits um they like looking well presented but where do I fit in because I'm not that person and you know to get ahead in business you're told you've got to be that person when do where do we just go hang on a second men for years you know you often see like people like Elon Musk and all of those very successful slightly quirky has a lot of kids (laughs) but very successful man (laughs) to random women but very successful man and he just wears jeans sneakers and a t-shirt and I know who I was looking at the other day talking about the way men dress Adam Sandler he was coming out of a New York, um, you know, restaurant, and that it was the basketball shoes, the, uh, the yeah. basketball shorts, the basketball top, and the sneakers, and that's what he always wears. 
Mm-hmm. Now, can you imagine if most females in this in, in that industry dress like Adam Sandler did every day? That'd be criticised going out of their house. Criticised. Oh, I see on my TikTok all the time. Hayley Bieber, Selena Gomez, Taylor Swift, they're always yeah. criticised for what they wear and they look so lush. So maybe we need more people like Pamela Anderson coming out. Yes, it was just makeup, but maybe more comfortable clothes, less makeup, so less like refined and perfect. Maybe we need the celebrities and the influencers to come out like that so then people like you and I can feel like it's normalised and feel more comfortable. But I put this to you, is that celebrity driven or is it media driven? Should the people that be changing are the people that are commenting on it? Because realistically our media has a lot to answer for in the way Mm. that we, you know, we can all have these very, I would like to say, woke discussions on what should be happening and how we change this and how we change this perception. But until the media stops making money off printing that and putting it online or printing it and putting it in magazines or whatever it is, we have, we are fighting an uphill battle. Mm. But maybe it's like the chicken or the egg because we're also clicking it. So maybe it's like we're clicking it because the media is feeding it to us. So it's a bit of a catch-22. Exactly right. So it is one of those things where I kind of go, we need to, you know, work out how exactly, as you said, we're all clicking it. So we need to start, I guess, driving the message home that that's not the imagery we want to see. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm happy to see imagery of people just, being themselves, I'm not going to comment, I'm not going to drive the clickbait up, drive the conversation. I'm just going to let it happen. Just let it be. Just walk away. Live your own life, people. Like, <laughs> And then maybe, like, maybe then something will start changing because it's so, if, if the money dries up, then that's when we'll start changing the conversation. So, Grace, I've we've got a great guest on the podcast coming up which I'm quite um I was just really fascinated to hear her story so I think you guys at home are gonna absolutely love it her name is Georgia Hartman and she runs a studio called Hormone Health Studio so you know she's a naturopath um but they specialize in fertility so she's very passionate about the fertility journey one the her story is just absolutely fascinating and one of the things I do talk about in this podcast is that my grandmother sorry went through any menopause so it was actually something I have always thought about could happen to me it's something that was always in the back of my head during my whole journey now obviously I didn't give myself enough of a kick up the ass because I still started trying for kids in my 40s um But I've always, you know, just had it in my head, the what if, like what if I went down Mm. that road? And that's actually a road that Georgia ended up facing. So it's just, it's a really interesting story. She was diagnosed, you know, in her 20s, really early 20s with early onset menopause. And she talks about in this episode, her journey, A, with that and the diagnosis, but also, you know, what she then did 
I guess, in, you know, it changed her whole life, right? So it changed her career and she decided that she was going to start studying this instead. Um, Her sister was diagnosed with endometriosis, so there was a family history there. And now she is working with women and men and, you know, in partners as both couples or individually to really help them with their fertility journey. And it's just, it's such a fascinating story from start to end. Georgia, thank you for joining us today. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. I like to always ask our guests, what was the catalyst or the light bulb moment that made you pursue this career? My sister was, um, and my poor sister gets mentioned all the time. I feel like all my clients know her on a really intimate level, but my sister has uh, endometriosis and she went on this whole journey with endo, trying to manage the pain, trying to manage the emotional and psychological side effects and how it affects her whole quality of life. And anyway, long story short, the best uh, the best thing she found to help manage her symptoms was by combining both complementary and conventional medicine. And so just seeing that change in her, she was actually the one that said to me, hey, you need to go and become a naturopath, you know, forget about your law degree, you know, this is, <laughs> this is not for you. Um, and I thought, I don't even know what a naturopath was. I didn't grow up, you know, it like totally mm. wasn't in my lifestyle at all. But then once I went to the open day, you know, five years later, I had my degree. And so that's how I got into it. But at the end of my degree, um, I was working at a fertility clinic and when I was working at this fertility clinic, I was exposed to all of these complex fertility cases and thought, I'm just going to check my fertility. And lo and behold, I was diagnosed with a condition called premature ovarian insufficiency and I was in my early 20s, essentially it's early menopause. And so then that really solidified my love for women's health, for fertility, for hormones. And so a few years after that, Hormone Health Studio was born. So what exactly is that? You said it was like early menopause. Yeah. So essentially you can have symptoms of menopause, like Mm. irregular, absent periods. You can have hot flushes. You can have mood problems. You can have very similar symptoms. But from more of a hormonal standpoint, it's really when some of your hormones go out of whack and it looks like you're in menopause. So FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, goes sky high. Estrogen can go rock bottom. Mm. And that in combination with the irregular or absent menstrual cycle can be indicative of premature ovarian insufficiency. Wow. Wow. And so what age were you diagnosed with this? I know I have such a baby face, right? So it's like such, <laughs> such a shock when everyone says like yeah. you're in early menopause. And um, I was you in do. my early twenties, and I remember sitting across what? from my uh, specialist who said it wow. looks like you're in menopause. And I looked at him, and I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he, I said, "What what does that mean?" And he said, mm. "Well, essentially." you know, given your age and that you haven't had children yet, you know, if that's something that you want to pursue, really your only option is going to be through donor egg. And I remember thinking far out, I'm like 21 or something, hadn't thought, I like knew yeah. I always wanted to be a mum, but hadn't thought much about the process or, you know, it was so far down the line for me at that point. How did you manage <laughs> like fertility and all that? Because that just adds an extra layer to the already complex world of fertility. Yeah. And this is something that I teach my clients is 
focus on the things you can control because you can't necessarily control Mm. your test results. You can't control a diagnosis that you may be given. You can't control some of the things that people are going to say to you, but what you can control is arguably so much more than that. You know, you can control the food you eat, the people you hang out with, the supplements you take, the testing you do. You can control the uh, chemicals you're exposed to, the sleep you get, the stress you're under, the exercise you do. There's so much in your control. And what we know about conditions like premature ovarian insufficiency is that Sure, you know, for some people, they might get a spontaneous cycle or they might get egg development and be able to conceive naturally. And I'm lucky enough to be one of those people. But for Mm. others, it can be so much more complex than that. And donor egg or, you know, whatever the option might be, is the path that they have to take. But irrespective, it's focus on the things you can control, because we know that all of these things affect your hormones. So as a um, naturopath, how, what kind of support do you offer women that are going through these issues? So I would say like 60% of our clients here mm. at Hormone Health Studio are um, fertility. So whether that's preconception, trying to conceive, whether it's IVF support, whether it's unsuccessful IVF and they've had enough and they want to try something different or they want to try naturally, whether it's a donor cycle, um, whether it's recurrent pregnancy loss, we see a lot of pregnancy loss and recurrent mm. pregnancy loss, two or three or more. Uh, mm. So the support we offer kind of depends on what we're mm. trying to treat. But from a fertility standpoint in general, one of our big questions is what are all the factors that are getting in the way? And this is where the research is really interesting because there's so much research on nutrition. For example, um, there was a study out of Harvard that looked at each 2% increase in the consumption of trans fats in the diet, so things like fried foods, takeaway mm. foods, pizzas, you know, processed foods, increases the risk by of, of ovulatory infertility, which is difficulty conceiving because of ovulation problems, by somewhere between 70 and 80%. Can't remember the exact number, but Whoa, it's like wow. just from trans fats, you know? So we turn to the research and we look at all of the dietary and lifestyle factors that affect hormones and fertility And we help our clients clean up all of that. So Mm. we do a lot through nutrition. We do a lot through supplements. We do a lot of investigation. So we'll do a lot of blood testing, check nutrients, check hormones. There's a lot of research coming out about the vaginal microbiome, which probably doesn't excite either of you as much as it excites me. But the interesting thing about the vaginal microbiome is that there's a link with, you know, whatever's happening there and chance of conception, IVF Mm. success, the implication of the vaginal microbiome on recurrent pregnancy loss. So we dive a bit deeper and really have a look holistically at what's going on in the whole body and how that might be affecting hormones. So can you share with our listeners what the vagina microbiome is? Yes. So in comparison to the gut microbiome, you may have heard of the gut microbiome and essentially it's just all the different bugs and species that Mm. live in the gut. And in the gut, we want diversity. We want all different strains. You want it to be this nice environment um, that has diversity. The vaginal microbiome is the complete opposite. You want that strictly lactobacillus dominant. And when it's not, it changes the pH and creates this environment for things to grow and thrive. Whether that's thrush, like we see a lot of chronic thrush or thrush that's cyclic because thrush candida loves estrogen. So you often see it 
rise with estrogen fluctuations, um, or whether it's bacterial vaginosis or other infections like urea plasma, mycoplasma. So when we test the vaginal microbiome, and it's quite an easy, you can do it yourself at home, um, like a little swab, and we'll see what's in there, what the pH is, if there's any infections or anything. But what we also see is the breakdown of all the beneficial bacteria. And so that's where there's a breakdown on all the different lactobacillus species. And what we know is that we all may have one or two dominant lactobacillus Mm. species. So once we know exactly what that dominant species is, we could always go in with vaginal probiotics specific to that strain to support the vaginal microbiome. So it gets really interesting and it gets really individualized when we start doing tests like this and looking at just the person in front of us and what might be going on for them. What other conditions are you looking for? And also how early are patients coming to you? Do they come when they know that they've got a condition or is there stuff that you can do to kind of help um, test them, I guess, in when they're leading up to that, you know, looking at conception and thinking about that kind of fertility journey and they haven't yet started? So we see people, you know, it kind of depends. We see them all throughout Mm. the journey. So for some people, they'll come to us six months before they even want to start trying and they go, okay, I just want to clean everything up. want to make sure I'm healthy. My partner's healthy. Let's do some basic bloods. Let's clean up the diet, do some like prenatals, Mm. egg quality, sperm quality supplements. So you might get people like that. You'll also get people who have started trying and they've, or they're newly pregnant and they'll go, ah, I'm not taking anything. I need to make sure that I've got enough nutrients to support this pregnancy. Or we'll see people who have been doing IVF, um, particularly if they've been told that it's probably an egg quality or a sperm quality Mm. problem, then they'll start going, okay, well, how can I improve egg quality and sperm quality? And they'll find their way to someone like us. Or we'll get people who have experienced pregnancy loss or recurrent pregnancy loss and Mm. have come to a point where they go, okay, I need to try something else. So we kind of see people um, at all of those stages and it kind of depends. Yeah, sometimes you see them six months, 12 months before they even start, just meet them where they're at. To Mm. answer your first question about the um, types of conditions we treat, so, yeah, we do a lot of endo. There's a lot you can do to help um, manage endo. We see a lot of PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. So, and and that's an interesting condition because you get a whole scale of women with PCOS. You get some with the classic symptoms like overweight, facial hair, difficulty conceiving, absent cycles or really long cycles, acne, like you get that type of picture. But then you can get the complete other end of the scale where you might have someone quite slim, no acne, no facial hair growth. And the only reason that they've found PCOS is because they've been trying to conceive and nothing's happening and they realize that they're not ovulating. So we see a lot of PCOS. We see a lot of thyroid dysfunction, whether that's subclinical, meaning that they have some symptoms, but technically their thyroid hormones are within range, just not optimal. We see a lot of underactive thyroid, Hashimoto's, which is autoimmune kind of version of an underactive thyroid. We also see an overactive thyroid and Graves' disease, so a lot of thyroid dysfunction. Um, we also see a lot of menopause, whether that's something like mm. premature ovarian insufficiency or kind of early menopause and the classic, you know, an appropriate age. So we, yeah, we kind of see, we see PMS, PMDD, which is a severe form of PMS with anxiety and depression, 
kind of any type of concern from as soon as you get your period to after menopause. You're like the Bible of naturopaths for women's health. Oh, I'm going to put that in my my bio. Go for it. (laughs) Be our new catch line. (laughs) Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say it's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight-week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus, fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts, and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. You're a naturopath and studied nutrition, but do you work with other medical professionals so you can give your patients Mm. a kind of broad plan or do you just hone in on the naturopathy side of things? Yeah, so it's a good question because we do a lot of fertility work and we have a lot of clients that are receiving some sort of assisted reproductive support, whether that's IVF or something else or, you know, a a medicated cycle like using Clomid or Letrozole to help ovulation. We work a lot with fertility specialists. So um, we do. We work a lot with them. And endocrinologists as well who come into play a lot when it comes to thyroid health um so yeah we work alongside and what I like to say is it's never going to be us versus them it's you know who's sitting in front of us what's their concern what have they tried what's missing and what do we need to do about it and how can we work as a team to help the person or couple sitting in front of us it's like Clara says for our eight-week program we have a team of experts and Clara calls them the Avengers because they all have their unique skill and Mm. what we've learned for me personally is you need a team to help with all areas of your health, not one practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So how do you go from, you know, being told that you're in early menopause to, you know, obviously going through a fertility journey, you know, what 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 are your options? What can you do health-wise to help you? Our community who actually, as soon as we posted anything about early menopause, went, yeah, that's me. And I didn't know I had it. I didn't realize those were the symptoms. You know, I didn't, I didn't even know that's what I was suffering from. So it can be quite scary, obviously. Like I had, um, my grandmother went through early menopause. So she went through menopause, not as early as you, but she went through menopause in her thirties. And it's actually something I've been, I was terrified of my whole life because I just assumed if historically it could be through my mum or it could be through my, you know, maternal line, then it might be something that happens to me. So what, you know, what can happen in that scenario? Can people still get pregnant? Are there things that you can do when, you know, you are going through early menopause? Yeah, and it's an interesting point to make about your grandmother having it because there's a lot to say about our environment because when, when mm. I was first diagnosed, my first question was why? Like, you know, my mom didn't have any difficulty conceiving. She had her kids when she was 32, 34, 36, no problem. And, you know, on my maternal line, there was there's nothing in the family. Everyone's quite fertile, so to speak. Um, and so what's interesting is that we're learning that the environment plays a big role. Mm. And we there's there's lots of research coming out looking at maternal exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals pre-pregnancy during pregnancy and how is that affecting your own follicle pool and egg uh, egg quality but also that of 
our daughters. So mm. it's it's interesting. I, you know, there's there's a lot of questions around why is this prevalent now? Like where where is this all coming from, and and what's happening in our environment that could be contributing? Not to blame my mum, of course. I hope she doesn't listen to this and think, oh, here she is again <laughs> blaming me again. Um, but. What we do, so yes, how did I go from a diagnosis of mm. premature ovarian insufficiency in my early 20s to now having two kids? And it's a good question yeah. because essentially when I was told that I had POI, I remember thinking there is no, like how, I'm like it just didn't sit right. You know, I didn't, mm. I didn't get hit with that. Of course I was upset. I walked out crying in the street. It was like a Wednesday at lunchtime. I had to like pull myself together to go back to work. But I remember thinking, how is this possible? How can someone so young be told, no, you know, your only chance is donor egg? And so part of me kind of didn't believe it. I went on a Mm. whole journey, and this is obviously not for everyone, but I just remember thinking, I know so deep down that I'll be a mum at some point, you know, no matter how I get there. But I just, there was like that real inner belief. But I went on a whole journey to figure out, okay, what are these hormones? How do we create them? What's the communication mm. axis that I need to be working on and how do I do it? And so mm. one of the things I discovered um, is something called the HPO axis, which is the communication between the hypothalamus, the pituitary and the ovaries. And the hypothalamus is in your brain. It's right behind your eyes. And your hypothalamus is your hormone command center. And it tells your pituitary, which is a little gland that sits right below it, to make the hormones FSH and LH. And we know in premature ovarian insufficiency that FSH is really high. These two hormones then tell your ovaries to make estrogen and progesterone. So when that communication axis is working properly, things should be good. You know, there's a regular mm. menstrual cycle. There's not a lot of symptoms, mood stable. There's no PMS, like thing, things are nice. What can often happen though when the FSH is going high it's kind of like your brain or yeah, your hypothalamus kind of yelling at your ovaries to ovulate rather than gently asking them. When that axis is working well, everything's in check. But when the FSH goes really high, it can mean that your brain is yelling at your ovaries to ovulate rather than gently asking them. So I then figured out, okay, well, that sounds like me. It sounds like I'm having a big miscommunication between my brain and my ovaries. How do I fix that? And so then what I learned is, oh, well, there's actually many factors that affect this communication axis. Sleep, stress, the wrong type of exercise. We, um, not to plug my own podcast, but we interviewed someone on our podcast who was a sports nutritionist about how to exercise throughout your menstrual cycle. So that was really interesting. Mm, yeah. Looking at the different types of exercise and how that, and how you can exercise appropriately with your hormones. So exercise is a big one. Nutrition is a big one. I already spoke about trans fats. That's just one little part of nutrition. We know that, you know, too much processed sugar can affect it. We know overeating or undereating can affect that axis. Um, other things like supplements, exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals, like there's a whole, a whole list of dietary and lifestyle factors that affect the HPO axis. And so, like I said, you just focus on the things you can control. What are some of the environmental stresses that can cause these infertility issues? So when we talk about endocrine disrupting chemicals, they're essentially Mm. a class of chemicals that are man-made, so to speak, and affect the endocrine system. And we know that hormones are in the endocrine system. So 
Some of the big ones that are getting heavily researched are bisphenols, which essentially are plastics. You may have heard of BPA. Mm. That's a type of bisphenol. But there's also other types of bisphenols like BPS, BPF, BPZ. And if you have a plastic container that says it's BPA-free but it's still plastic, you know that they've just used other types of bisphenols other than BPA. And what the research tells us is that those bisphenols are just as problematic as BPA, so you're best to avoid all plastics. So bisphenols are a big one. Other mm. chemicals, though, like phthalates, parabens, you find these in skincare, in shampoo, conditioner, perfume, makeup, uh, sanitary products, deodorant. So when we think about the environment, one of my biggest recommendations is to kind of break it up into three groups. It's like, let's mm. look at the chemicals that you might be finding in your food. So what we eat, you might have chemicals on your body. So with the products we use, and then we look at your home and look at the mm. chemicals that you're using in your cleaning, in your washing, and um, clean them up, you know, reduce our exposure where we can, knowing its effect on hormones and fertility. When people first starting to go through this process and are deciding to, you know, start to reduce, because I don't think it's just um, comes down to fertility, right? Like this is probably overall health and um, and hormone health, but overall health. Right. So how do you start going through this process? Obviously, people are going to go into their cupboards and start chucking everything out. Is there a way to, you know, really start to clean it up in a sensible way so that you're doing it? you know, without having to spend a lot of money replacing everything, how what's the best way to go about something like this? I always just like to keep it simple, you know, mm. and from a hormonal standpoint, a lot of the work that we do is to just master the basics. So, and, and what I mean by that when it comes to your environment is that maybe we could ditch the perfume altogether, you know, and just yeah. have deodorant. You know what I mean? Like instead of layering layers and layers mm. and layers of all different things on our bodies, maybe we could really strip it back and keep it simple. Same with skincare. Instead of doing peels and scrubs and this type of cream and this type of lotion and a million things in a day, maybe you could keep it quite simple and, and you know, by doing so, you're going to naturally be reducing your exposure to all of these chemicals. But mm. at, yeah, it, it can be totally overwhelming. And the last thing mm. you want to do is wrap yourself in bubble wrap because it's plastic and that's bad for you. But, you know, you can go step by step and, you know, as you run out of something, swap it over or, you know, do a bit more research. There's so many wonderful brands out there now that are doing such beautiful work, creating beautiful products that are also quite sustainable. So it's just a matter of, getting the education and making the swaps where you can. I also mm. think it's um, a generational thing as well. Like it's, I think us having these conversations, I know that I've got a 10-month-old daughter, you know, making sure that what I then do and set up how my home is and, you know, and to your point, I don't use perfume anymore. Um, it's, it's something that I've stopped for quite a few years now. And one of the reasons is there's quite bad skin irritants as well in perfumes that a lot of people aren't aware of. And you can get quite bad reactions around your neck and around your chest and stuff. So it's it's always been something for me that I've been a bit wary of wearing. Um, On that, Clara, that area too, like that's where your thyroid is. Your thyroid exactly. is right at the base of your neck. And so that's yeah. where we often put perfume. And so you think, far out, you're putting it right on the worst place. 
Yeah, mm. exactly right. And it's, right. And it, it's so it's it's the same with a lot of different things that we use. To your point, and we've just done a bit of research into it in I Quit Sugar World, um, and it's actually one of our blogs at the moment. Is obviously the plastics that you use in um, sanitary items as well, mm. and that's something that. Um, I don't know how to say this politely on a podcast. Goes up you. I'm just going to go there, right? <laughs> Putting inside your body. That's yeah. probably a nicer way of saying it. Inside your body. Yeah, I know. Um, it's problematic. It's really problematic. And that's something that, um, again, I think only in the last really maybe five years, there's been alternatives to doing that. You know, a lot of young girls were taught that um, tampons were the cleanest way to do it. Um, they didn't want to use pads. They didn't want to use sanitary pads. Not that sanitary pads are sometimes great as well. Uh, and now there's all these different alternatives, you know, though in saying that there's also some issues with period underwear as well at the moment and some of the research around period underwear. But there is now alternatives. There's ways of going about it that, you know, um, that are outside of what I know I'm in my 40s, what we were exposed to back then as well and the conversations we were having. What is some advice that you would offer to women who are just beginning their fertility journey and seeking natural solutions to enhance their chances of conception? Mm. So it's a good question because what I would like to see more is people walk through our doors who haven't experienced recurrent pregnancy loss. It would be so mm. nice to, and look, there's people that we see and have seen who've then gone on to experience pregnancy loss and it's so prevalent, but there's so many factors that come into pregnancy loss and there's a lot that we can do in that preconception phase to help prevent, you know, how often this happens. So, and, and, and a lot of it can come through food and um, environmental factors, which we've spoken about, but there's a lot to say about simple blood testing because we know that, for example, vitamin B12 plays a really big role in many factors in neurological health and in feelings of anxiety and depression and chronic fatigue, but also is required for the wall of the embryo. It plays a big role in a process called methylation, which we know can affect fertility. And so something as simple as vitamin B12 deficiency can be problematic. Same with vitamin D. There's research mm. looking at vitamin D of less than 75 nanomoles per litre. And in Australia, anything over 50 is sufficient. But if it's less than 75, that can contribute to irregular cycles. And so that's going to have an effect on ovulation and fertility. Things like iron, the last thing you want to do is enter pregnancy iron deficient because it's mm. very likely that at some stage that baby is going to leach all iron from you and it's going to be really <laughs> hard to increase it again. So some simple blood testing to check nutrient status, mm. to check thyroid function. We know with the thyroid that your thyroid stimulating hormone, if that's more than 2.5 in first trimester that can be associated with pregnancy loss. So doing a lot of this investigation pre-pregnancy and correcting and optimizing your health in that phase can do wonders heading into yeah, pregnancy. 
I'm a strong advocate for, um, and I bang on about this in the podcast a little bit too much, and to Grace on a personal note because she's yet to have a child. So uh, I sit there and go with her that she has to start early. I'm like, but this is the thing. I just don't feel like in Australia and probably, you know, I'm only going to say Australia because I don't know what it's like um, overseas and what people do with preconception overseas. The, the testing that you get done is very minimal compared to what can be wrong when you go into um, conception. And the amount of people that actually get that testing is very minimal as well. So I, I similar to you, obviously, you decided to do it because you knew that your sister had an issue and you just wanted to check out what it was. Like 21 is exceptionally young for mm. anyone to sit there and go, oh, I might just see if something's up with my body because Mm -hmm. my sister has this. Um, A lot of people don't really do it until they're on the back foot. So they don't look at doing any of this stuff until they start going through their fertility journey. Mm. And I really strongly believe that it's something that we should be talking to our children about and saying, you know, when you're 18, 19 or even earlier because, you know, endometriosis, you're definitely getting signs in your teenage years get it checked out, go and see Mm. people, push for those tests, advocate for yourself. Um, And it is people like yourself, these specialists that are starting to come up that does make access a lot easier. I do find that our medical profession can be stone walls when it comes Mm. to testing for these kind of issues. But I I think the other thing too, sorry to cut you off, Clara, is that in the fertility setting, Often you're told to go away and try for 12 months and if nothing happens, come back. And this might be a little topical, but 12 months is a really long time. Yeah. And particularly when you're trying month after month Mm. and and nothing's happening. And so having the information during that process while you're trying, it's like, well, okay, keep trying. Let's just see what we can find and let's correct that along the Mm -hmm. way. It's a similar conversation with pregnancy loss because, you know, often you're not taken seriously enough when it comes to comprehensive investigation once you fit the category of recurrent pregnancy loss, which at the moment is Mm -hmm. three. I know they're changing it to two and in some countries it's two, but whoever made that rule... (laughs) hasn't experienced pregnancy loss because mm. you do not want to experience three and then be taken seriously in mm. the conversation of fertility. So I agree it's hard. It can be hard to get testing done, but that's why it's it's a big pillar of us because as a naturopath, what I'm taught is to find the root cause of something and treat that. So it's a mm. big part of my practice and our practice, we're a team of six now, is to find all of the factors that are getting in the way and correct it as best we can. I do think you're right on that. That 12 month process is a long time. And, you know, when I was starting to talk to people because my partner and I met later in life, so we were older anyway, and they asked us how long we'd been trying. And we kind of, you know, we weren't really giving it a good old try for a while. We were like, oh, you know, if it happens, it happens. And we were probably a little bit too blase about it. Um. But when we started speaking to people and just to see and get investigations done and they said, oh, you know, well, for your age, and I'm talking I was 40 and my partner is, I have to do some math, 44. So (laughs) we we weren't young and they were still saying 12 months. So they were like, oh, 
you know, if it hasn't happened in 12 months, that's totally normal at your age. And so you're there going, well, but 12 months can be emotionally very stressful, which puts added pressure on you. By the time you are actually getting to the doctors to do anything, you're months behind because to your point, it takes, you know, three to six months to start correcting some of the issues that you've got before you can try again. So that that puts your process so far behind. And then people are deflated, they're tired, they're stressed, and they're emotionally just, you know, exhausted by the process before they've even really got to start the process. Yeah, you're so right. And that's my biggest concern is that, you know, there's so much, there's so much research about how stress affects Mm. fertility. And so Mm. why do we put so much pressure on people, um, which is only going to have a negative effect? So yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Can you do genetic testing to help with your preconception plan and then your fertility plan? Yeah. So this, yeah, absolutely. So this is, a really exciting area, Grace, because um, I've done some genetics training. And what I love about genetics is that when I test your genes, I can see mm. how you're built, essentially. And treatment gets so streamlined once I can figure out exactly how you're built. And so the type of genetic testing we do is is different to that of, you know, an IVF clinic, or if we're testing for inherited conditions or diseases it's very different but where the type of genetic testing we do we look at genes involved in your mood and neurotransmitters that might predispose you to experiencing something like anxiety depression chronic fatigue there's genes involved in estrogen metabolism and liver function and antioxidant requirements which when we talk about egg quality and sperm quality we need lots of antioxidants to support egg quality and sperm quality It's because we're trying to improve mitochondria, which are like little energy hubs in our cells and eggs and sperm require a lot of mitochondria, which require a lot of antioxidants. So there's particular genes that are involved in antioxidant requirements. There's histamine genes. There's also some fertility genes. And when I say fertility genes, I'm really looking at the big nutrients that are involved in fertility. Like there's folate genes, vitamin B12 genes, choline genes, so once we have vitamin D genes, so once we have a look at how you're built and your genetic predisposition, we can kind of get a little bit more streamlined in our approach because we're not guessing. We're not throwing things at you in hope that they work. Obviously, there's a bit of hope and luck on the fertility journey, depending what you've mm. been through. But doing this type of comprehensive testing can just be a whole nother layer. And would you recommend both males and females get it done when they start trying? Yeah, I, well, I would love everyone to do their genes. <laughs> but particularly, um, I, I always say whenever I have someone sitting in front of me or a couple, it's mm. like I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't take into consideration your partner, unless undergoing solo reproduction. But think, you know, up to somewhere between 30 and 50% of pregnancy loss is caused by male factors alone. And so, you know, often when you experience pregnancy loss, you think, okay, well, that was my body. What did I do wrong? Mm. What have, you know, what did, what did I eat? What did I do? But it could be That's, coming solely from the male partner. That just blew my mind. I, yeah, it's actually same. not something I've ever thought about. So yeah. I know, again, 
you know, it's interesting doing this podcast because I'm 42 and honestly there's these mic drop moments that happen and that was one Mm. for me because women take on so much of the responsibility and I've said this time and time again, women take on, you know, the responsibility, they feel the pressure. We found out in one of our previous podcasts that what they consider sperm um good quality sperm is actually like over five percent or something don't quote me on that because i'm terrible remembering statistics yeah and yeah go and listen to the other podcast but genuinely i was like that was one of those micro moments because women i feel like women bear this burden and yeah. yet and i definitely thought when it came to i don't know why but when it came to loss it was more of an issue with the female because by that point I mean obviously I also know that the embryo is a big thing so if there's something wrong with the embryo you know that's it that's going to be a factor and that's just nature's way of um of helping that kind of process go through but I just never thought about it I just I don't know why I just never thought that it could be a male thing as well I know, so interesting. I've got two things I want to add to that and I'm hoping one will be another mic drop moment. But one is that if you have, and perhaps some of your listeners have experienced pregnancy loss and they're trying to figure Mm. out the next step for them, one of the tests that you can do when you do a semen analysis is add a marker called sperm DNA fragmentation. And what we know about that marker is that there's a link with high levels of sperm DNA frag and recurrent pregnancy loss. So that's Mm. one area that people can start looking at to see, okay, well, how much of this is a male factor issue? And that's a test Mm. that you can add on. You can ask your fertility specialist to do that. The second point I wanted to make was that in the head of the sperm carries the DNA. And Mm. when the DNA fertilizes um, the egg, well, you know, deposits and fertilizes in the egg, it's the egg's responsibility to clean up any damage in the sperm and any damage in the egg to make a healthy embryo. Of course it is. I know. I joke when I say we're cleaning up from them from day dot. What? So if we can improve sperm quality by like 5%, that's 5% less pressure on the egg to make a healthy embryo. And that's where it really comes into this is a team player situation. It's never going to be see the woman, give her all the supplements, she makes all the changes. It's Mm. like, no, no. That's 50% of the equation. We need the other 50%. Georgia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you. And for all our listeners who want to learn a little bit more, we'll put links in the show notes below. Like this podcast? Please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.